Hi, I'm the person whose closet is put in color order, but I'll also pick up an earthworm without thinking twice. In fact, I did yesterday. <laughs> it needed my help. I'm not afraid to be a little messy. Human nature is messy, but nature nature can help us embrace it. I love the brand seventh generation. Their laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with the power of bioenzymes. That's exciting. You wipe your hands on your pants after you pick up an earthworm. Seventh generation is like, don't worry, hug a dirty tree, huff some bark. It's good for you. That is the power of seventh generation. Find laundry detergent and other laundry products at seventhgeneration.com. I love worms. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Oh, hey. It's that guy in third period who's always drawing in a notepad, but never lets anyone see it. Allie Ward, back with another episode of Ologies. So behavioral ecology. What the ding-dang heck is it? Well, it's why animals such as worms and bugs and your cousin do what they do. And what's a better window into this world than the steamy porthole of cricket boning? So before we get to that sexiness, though, a few thank yous. So first of all, thank you to patrons at patreon.com slash ologies for all the support to make the podcast since day one. You allowed me to take a trip through the Midwest in April, gathering episodes as I went. So this would not exist without your donations. This very episode. Donations start at 25 cents an episode if you want to join in on that party. Also, thank you to everyone who has subscribed, who's rated, or especially who's reviewed the podcast. Y'all know I read your reviews on dark and stormy nights, and then I pluck a fresh one out in gratitude, such as, for example... Lugubrious Disposition says, Bob Saget, used here as an expletive. Allie Ward will crawl into your sweet little ear canal and before she leaves, prepare you a veritable feast of fascinating material on your eardrum table. Don't resist. Let her make brain dinner in your head. Thank you, Lugubrious Disposition, for that. I hope you're uncomfortably bloated with information. Okay, so behavioral ecology, let's get into it. So the word behavioral comes from a root for possession. And ecology is the science of the relationship of living things to their environment. And it comes from the Greek oikos, meaning house or dwelling. So being possessed with behavior in relation to your environment, why we do what we do, where we do it. So this episode was such a lucky fluke. It was just a gift from space and time. I was driving through the Midwest and I had a cancellation in an interview. So I had one extra hour in Omaha. So I tweeted, okay, so I happen to have the day open in Omaha. Any ologists out there? Or should I just go to the Omaha Zoo and lurk around with my equipment? And this ologist tweeted back, or you could just come lurk around Creighton University, visit my lab, and learn all about cricket sex and the nasty little horsehair worms that manipulate their host behavior and physiology. My response, I'll be there in 15 minutes. So I think she had to postpone a 10-year review for this, which is endearing and very punk rock, but I ran into her building. Uh, dashed into her office and we had a breakneck fast interview about her amazing work. So we sat down at her desk and had just a scintillating chat about what puts crickets in the mood, what kind of people behavioral ecologists are, why she likes converting pre-meds to cricket folks, some nightmarish parasites, 
inbreeding that puts Game of Thrones to shame, and why crickets and other animals, such as humans, might delay making babies in favor of more pressing concerns. So put your stubby wings together and make some noise for assistant professor at Creighton University and behavioral ecologist, Dr. Amy Worthington. Worthington. Okay, there we go. Dr. Worthington, of course. And so here we are. We're in Omaha. I have just completely bulldozed into your work day. <laughs> I'm so sorry. In all the right ways. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being on Twitter and available for me to like just bust into your university. Well, thanks for being responsive to my fan tweeting you <laughs> and trying to bully you into coming to Creighton instead of the Omaha Zoo. Well, I am very obviously familiar with what you do because your Twitter banner is two crickets um, in an tender, intimate moment. They are having sex, yes. <laughs> and so now you study cricket sex, but in a wider outlook, it's reproductive physiology, behavioral ecology. Tell me about what you do. Yeah. So a lot of the research that we do in my lab is we focus on the concept that there are what we call life history trade-offs. Again, life history trade-offs. Everyone from crickets to squirrels to you has to make trade-offs. So there's kind of every organism has a limited amount of resources in terms of energy that they can allocate towards different physiological processes. Mm -hmm. And if you overinvest in one, it means that one of those other physiological processes doesn't have the energy needed to fuel it. Mm -hmm. So our big trade-off that we look at is the trade-off between the immune response and reproduction. These are two of the most energetically costly processes of Oof. any individuals. So for some individual animals, it comes down to remaining alive or having shorties. But sometimes I guess animals can't decide, should I mate and die? Should I literally fuck off and die? <laughs> or <laughs> Live fast, die hard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or should I stay alive and maybe not reproduce as much? Yeah. And, and postpone reproduction until you're, you're healthy and you've recovered from some type of illness or parasite. Absolutely. Or like finishing school. I don't know. P.S. Speaking of which, Amy got a bachelor's and a master's in biology at the University of South Dakota and a Ph.D. in ecology and evolutionary biology from Iowa State University. And she says she grew up obsessed with Bill Nye. Hey. And her dad always set up science projects like rockets and paper lanterns and chemistry experiments. And she says as a kid, she would hole up in her room, sometimes taking notes on organisms in her animal encyclopedia, which is such adorable dorkiness. I want a time machine. I want to go back and babysit her. And she said she wanted to be a science educator, but didn't realize that she was going to be a researcher until after getting her master's. So she moved on to her PhD. And so now you're doing this kind of under the model of crickets. Yes. Did you always like crickets or are they like a really fast reproducing, like a good species to study? Yes to all of the above. Okay. So um, uh, crickets, you know, I didn't grow up loving insects. I was like most people, terrified of them. Uh -huh. uh, I worked in a pet store for a long time and crickets were my <laughs> first insect that I had an intimate relationship with. People come in to get them to feed their or their animals. Yeah. Um, so I became really familiar with them then. And when I started my PhD, there was a project um, in a lab at Iowa State working on crickets, and they're just fabulous organisms. There's a surprisingly large research group uh, that focuses on 
researching crickets, especially really? in the context of evolution and mating and reproduction and immune response. And so they're perfect. They reproduce really quickly. You can have a lab population of them. So you kind of always have access to them and they're easy to handle. They're easy to rear. They're cheap to feed. They eat mm -hmm. special kitty cat food from Walmart. They do? Uh, yes. <laughs> I didn't know that. And so they're just fabulous organisms to work with. And each lady cricket can have over 200 children, which smokes the birth rate of both of my Catholic grandmas. I asked Amy if her lab subjects ever serenade her. Uh, the males sing. Oh. Yes. Okay. So the males rub their wings together, not mm -hmm. their legs, which is a common misconception. Yeah, that's a flim flim right there. Yeah. Yeah. So they rub their, the males rub their wings together and it's a mechanism to attract females. Mm -hmm. So they have several different calls, both ones that attract females from a long ways away. And then when females get close, they change into a different type of song that essentially displays how sexy they are. You are so friggin' sexy right now. At what point did you start to really like embrace the cricket and get excited about doing research with them? Yeah, so when I first started my PhD, mm -hmm. um, I my first year of my PhD, I went out in the field and collected these crickets. And one of the things that will always stick with me is collecting these crickets in the wild is insane. Really? <laughs> because you're out at night in a field and you're trying to collect these crickets and find them. And half the time when you think you find a cricket, you get close and you see one and about two inches away, there is a spider or a scorpion, some type of predator that's just about ready to eat it. Oh, no. And so you start realizing that there are a lot of issues at play in terms of these males that are calling and they're drawing attention to themselves mm -hmm. um, because they're sending out this large auditory cue to the environment. So predators can find them easily. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, you've got these females that are out wandering aimlessly trying to find these males and they have to travel fairly long distances to find males. And in mm -hmm. the process, they're encountering predators themselves Ooh. and parasites and all sorts of different uh, pathogens. And it just is amazing that they can be as numerous as they are when they have so many challenges that are kind of hindering their ability to reproduce. Yeah, and so what are the biggest challenges that you've encountered or how do you study that in the lab? Because I'm going to guess that your lab doesn't have like scorpions and spiders everywhere, like an obstacle course. <laughs> like a, no. Like a Halloween no. like horror house for the crickets. No. That would be fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we actually study the effects of this long-lived parasite called a horsehair worm. <gasps> and they are fairly large parasites that infect crickets as one of their hosts. Um, mm -hmm. They also infect you know, cockroaches and praying mantids and things like that. All right. So one of the factors of immunity is, do y'all get parasites? And we're just going to put our blinkity blinker on. We're going to merge real quick onto a side street about horsehair worms because they are bananas and they're more nightmarish than any sci-fi CGI and crickets have to contend with them. But first off, how rare are these things? Um, the number of people I've had come up to me and be like, okay, I have a question. I stepped on a cricket the other day and then I say, and a giant worm came out and they're like, yes. Oh God. And so my yoga teacher did that to me and she was surprised that I knew what was coming because she thought it was the most bizarre and I wasn't going to believe that it happened. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that's what I study. Oh my God. So they're actually fairly common. I mean, they're in those streams that you're, you're driving over and that you're kind of ignoring. And so they're, they're everywhere. Mm. Yeah. I had no idea. I thought they were super rare because it's 
they're it's disgusting and and weird <laughs> so i was like oh this has got to be like one in a million like finding a finding a pearl in an oyster or yes. something so how are crickets getting these have they been cursed by a witch did they anger a magic troll but they essentially get eaten in a cyst form mm. by the crickets and then these cysts develop inside of these hosts for a month and sometimes more and they when they emerge can be you know 20 times longer than the length of their host oh barf so it's actually pretty impressive i brought one in just so you can what? see what these horsehair worms look like she just produced a vial from her blazer pocket <laughs> and in it it's just this like gunar this is amazing this looks like my hair all over like car seats and in the shower but it's a thick it's like a thick wiry how long is this thing um, I mean, my guess is that one's probably about nine to 12 inches long. Good. And it came out of a, you know, like a one inch cricket. How does it happen? This looks like something that if you found it in your omelet, you would definitely sue the diner. <laughs> this is gnarly. <laughs> so how do they grow so much bigger? And what's the difference in mass? Yeah. So this is what's kind of crazy is mm -hmm. that these parasites grow from something that you have to basically see under a microscope into yeah. a worm this large. Mm -hmm. They do it over about the course of a month, mm -hmm. which is a significant portion of the cricket's life. Yeah. Right? Crickets generally live for maybe two to three months in the wild, and that's it. Oof. So for half to a third of a cricket's life, they have this terrible parasite that's growing like crazy inside them. And the only thing that these parasites can rely on for their own growth is essentially eating up the fat reserves of their host. No. So quick aside, not only that, but certain species can zombify the host's brain, making them seek water, fling themselves in, and drown so that the horsehair worm can make a graceful exit out of its dead anus to go make more babies in the water. And just as I was relishing in the comfort of not being a cricket, I did stumble upon a paper in a scientific journal about a few people in Japan who have been infected with horsehair worms. And now I have to bleach my eyeballs. Anyway, behavioral ecology, life history trade-offs. So getting back into what I generally study in terms of these life history trade-offs, obviously in this case, the host cricket potentially would like to have an immune response and mount an immune response against these parasites to kill them off. And we've been trying to figure out how it is that the parasites actually avoid being detected by the immune response of the cricket. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, being that the, it looks like the crickets aren't necessarily able to mount an, a response against them, but one of the, the drawbacks to that is that these parasites now actively eat and take up all of the fat reserves of the cricket, mm. which otherwise these crickets are trying to build up for their own reproductive purposes. Mm -hmm. So they're using that fat in order to grow larger. They're investing that fat um, and those energy resources into creating very large testes. You may not know this, but crickets have some of the largest testes per body size what? of any animal in the animal kingdom. Really? They're giant. Very large. Why? And it's because they have a lot of sex. Oh my God, they do? <laughs> so much sex. So on average, um, some, some recent studies have shown that individuals mate up to like seven or eight times per night. Oh boy. With the same cricket or just like yeah. a... Usually it can be the same. Um, and they also will go out and actively find other, other partners to mate with. Why are they so horny? <laughs> 
so <laughs> horny. <laughs> I get a lot of benefit out of it. So obviously for males, the more they mate, the more uh, tickets in the lottery, so to speak, they have mm-hmm. for, um, you know, providing sperm to fertilize a female's eggs. Uh-huh. Uh, and for females, some of my PhD work actually showed that females that mate early and often actually have higher fecundity. So they're able to lay more eggs and have more offspring themselves. Like so, a use it or lose it kind of yeah. a thing? Yeah. Dang. So both males and females mate at high rates and they get um, fitness benefits from doing so. Oh, my God. Mm. So then is this also like we're going to need more baby crickets out there if we're going to have scorpions trying to hunt us when we're out doing our songs? Like, is this also just strength in numbers? Yeah, it's a bit of that, you know, like animals in the wild, their main goal is to produce the maximum amount of offspring as possible. Mm-hmm. And individuals that can produce more offspring than other individuals of their same species have higher fitness, they pass on more of their genes, and in terms of evolutionary time periods, they have a bigger effect in terms of which genes are a part of that that pool. So, provided they have the resources themselves to survive, animals are typically wired to pass along more of themselves. But even Charles Darwin was like, why though? He wrote in 1862, we do not even in the least know the final cause of sexuality. Why new beings should be produced by the union of the two sexual elements? The whole subject is as yet hidden in darkness. A study published in Nature 2015 shone a light on it, and it dealt with flower beetles and essentially inbred them for several generations, kind of like royalty, until they could no longer go on and survive. And the study found that it was pretty key for the males to compete for reproduction and females to choose. And the authors wrote, quote, our findings reveal that sexual selection improves population viability in the face of genetic stress. So I suppose just know the choosier you are today, the better off our entire species tomorrow. So keep swiping. And so with your research, are you looking at how often the crickets are mating, what resources they need? What have you been able to determine from that? And does it apply to any other bugs or any other species? Oh, yeah. So we've got um, some pretty crazy evidence from my PhD. And this is actually one of the coolest things that I came across. Um, and why I am now like so unbelievably passionate about crickets uh-huh. is that during my PhD, we were trying to look at, okay, well, why, what benefits do females get from mating? She's ready. We know mm-hmm. that if they mate more, they, they lay more eggs and they have more offspring, but males don't provide anything. They give like this teeny tiny little spermatophore, which is just a capsule containing sperm mm-hmm. and some seminal fluids. And then they're off. There's no parental care. They don't give anything to the females. In fact, sometimes they can injure the females because they're kind of jerks. But yeah, females are having more babies mm-hmm. when they mate more. And so we started looking at what exactly is in that spermatophore aside from sperm. Oh. And one trend that had been building um, not only in crickets, but across a variety of different taxa are that females that mate more or that have mated have stronger immune systems. Oh, my God. Which there's a lot of explanations for that. But when you get down to these crickets that are basically just passing seminal fluid and that's it, we don't really know why they would have a stronger immune response mm-hmm. and essentially have increased survival. Mm-hmm. And so for my work, I ended up looking into that and found that there are particular chemicals that are passed on in that seminal fluid that are both major modulators of female reproduction. So 
something in the sperm capsule. What is in the sperm capsule? Is it pixie dust? Is it a dewdrop of Red Bull? So as males provide, they're called prostaglandins. Mm -hmm. um, as males provide prostaglandins, it helps females produce more eggs and it stimulates them to lay more eggs. Mm -hmm. But this chemical is also one of the major modulators of the immune response. Oh, so if you are out there, you're getting more cricket tail and you're a lady, does that mean that you're less likely to get like a horsehair worm? Potentially. Okay. Um, definitely seems like you're less likely to die from some of the other diseases, such as like bacterial infections. Uh -huh. um, you might also be able to fight off ectoparasites more. Ooh. Yeah. Mm. And so there's all of these things that, that go together in terms of, you know, as individuals mate, they gain fitness and they can lay more eggs and have more offspring. But it also seems, you know, we generally think of, okay, if you, if you overinvest in reproduction, well, now you don't have as much energy to invest in immune response. Which would make sense because making other beings is expensive and more so when you're not a cricket and you can't just bury a hundred of your babies in loose soil and be like, bye-bye, good luck. I'm gonna go find some new dads. But how does it affect crickets? Mm -hmm. And yet here we are finding females that are having increased fitness and laying more babies yeah. and also having a stronger immune response. <gasps> so it goes against the ideas of these trade-offs that yeah. we kind of innately think exist. What about the males? Do they lose anything by mating more? Are they gaining anything other than uh, better chances of having more babies? But are they gaining anything from an, an immune standpoint at all? No, and that's one of the things that I was trying to look at, and I never quite got to answer this question yet. Okay. Um, but if males are providing this, this prostaglandin mm -hmm. to help females lay eggs and to help them survive better, potentially until they lay their eggs, mm -hmm. is that taking away prostaglandin that males need to modulate their immune response yeah. and upregulate that? And so that's something that is a, a current question that we have and that we're, we're still interested in looking into. So not only do males compete to be like, I'm the best, trust me, look how hard I will sing for you, I will fight a scorpion, but also female crickets can be choosy, not just at the time of the bonking. So during mating, males insert this spermatophore into a female's reproductive tract, and it drains into her for the next 40 or so minutes. But there's also something called fertilization bias, or directional post-mating female mate choice. This is also called cryptic because it's like, oh, what's going on in there? And in some species, certain sperm may not be stored. So she's like, thanks, it was so fun. Nah. And then this can protect the species from inbreeding. Now, in a study titled Female Crickets Assess Relatedness During Mate Guarding and Bias Storage of Sperm Toward Unrelated Males, this boiling hot tea was spilled. Okay, so it says that while sperm are being transferred from the spermatophore to the female's reproductive tract, the mated male remains with and guards the female because females often attempt to leave unattractive males and go remove the spermatophores before the sperm drips in and has been transferred. And then the guarding males try to prevent the females from doing so. So the guarding can represent a period of sexual conflict over insemination. Males attempt to subvert the female mate choice decision. Dudes are like, no, keep mine. Keep it. Keep it. And the female's like, I don't even like you that much. Interesting. Do you ever apply any of your cricket knowledge to your own love life or your friend's love life? <laughs> um, in terms of this, when I give this research talk, I do make it clear that 
prostaglandin is a component of seminal fluids across all animals. Ooh. And it was originally given its name because it was found in the human prostate. Oh! So prostaglandin mediates reproductive physiology in humans mm-hmm. and immunophysiology in humans as well. So it has kind of conserved functions from crickets all the way up to humans. And is it easier to study it kind of in a model with crickets and then perhaps other, you know, going on up the food chain, it'll be looked at in a different way because of what you can kind of prove or detect in crickets? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So what we learn in crickets is, you know, crickets are a very basic model, but they're super easy and incredibly cheap to work with. Mm -hmm. And so we can learn a lot about them and we can do a lot of manipulations experimentally that are essentially unethical when you get to kind of these higher order animals. So the second something has a backbone, all of a sudden it's um, more likely to feel pain, especially more intensely. And Mm -hmm. so there's a lot more restrictions there in terms of not only what you can do, but kind of what you feel comfortable doing as well. Yeah. What do your experiments look like? Are there cages of different crickets and they're checking each other (laughs) out? Like, how do you sex a cricket? What does lab work look like? Yeah. So when we are doing mating type trials, Mm -hmm. um, which is something we'll be doing a lot of this summer to look at the effects of these ridiculous horsehair worms and whether they make males unsexy to females. Can you imagine watching The Bachelorette? And a dude is eliminated for having a giant 18-foot-long worm coming out of his ass. I can. I can imagine it. And it's riveting. But we essentially go into this very warm, humid, dark room, and we turn on the red lights. And we (laughs) pair crickets together and watch them have sex. (gasps) What kind of notes do you have to make on a clipboard like are you like how long it lasts like how many yes. partners like yeah how long it took me ma- uh, so how long it took females to mount their males how long Wait, it ladies took- mount the guys yeah oh that's that. another really cool thing about crickets is a lot of animals you find you know males get a lot out of mating mm-hmm. um they have a really high reproductive capacity so the more females they mate with the higher their fitness mm-hmm. and that's generally not the rule with females mm-hmm. so females can mate with lots of males but they generally don't can't ever obtain as high a fitness as males because mm-hmm. they have a limited number of eggs well um a lot of animals will males will coerce females into mating essentially that's like the non-anthropomorphic way to say that they rape them yeah science Sometimes pretty awful. And by science, I mean life. And male crickets can't do that. Oh. So males have to call to females. Is she ready? Females have to accept them as a mate, and females have to mount them in order for males to transfer their ejaculate. She ready. Oh. And so that gets to why are females mating so frequently if they don't necessarily have to. Mm -hmm. There's nothing forcing them to do it, so there's obviously some benefit for that. Do you think that there's anything innately that they can sense themselves getting stronger because of their immune response? Yeah, so there's definitely going to be different propensities to Mm -hmm. remate. Mm -hmm. um, And that might be dependent on, you know, previous mate experiences. So if you've mated before and your previous mate was kind of low quality, Mm-hmm. You probably have a higher propensity to mate again. Mm-hmm. Um, also condition. So depending on if you have a lot of resources and a lot of eggs available, you're probably likely to mate to make sure you have enough sperm to fertilize them 
Whereas if you're kind of in the process of producing eggs and there's nothing to lay, you might avoid it because mating is pretty costly. Mm -hmm. Females frequently get injured, they, they lose eggs, they get sexually transmitted diseases. Making babies pretty costly in so many ways. So um, one of the more common ones are there are these little nematodes that essentially kind of get passed around. Um, And so they kind of hide up by the genitalia and they can get passed from one cricket to the next. Jenny worms are the worst. (laughs) Just the worst. I wonder if their Tinder bios have to be like, P.S. I have Jenny worms. It's not a big deal. Um, (laughs) So when you're watching them, how do you know which female is which? Are they wearing different colored vests? What's the... Oh, if we have multiple females that we're watching, mm-hmm. um, we just use little paint markers. So we can mark their pronotum, pronotums and they can, you know, have different little colors associated with them. Or we keep them in different deli cups. Mm-hmm. So those things that you bring all your leftovers home from yeah. the restaurant, that's what we do our cricket matings in. Do you put one on one together at a time or do you like put several together and see what happens? Yeah, usually if we're trying to actually do behavioral assays, we will put uh, one male, one female in together. So heteronormative. Poor crickets. Just another reason to be glad you're not a cricket and you can be who you want to be, love who you want to love. You get to eat snow cones and ride in fast trains, staring at the horizon, and your lifespan is longer than three months. And then does how do you know if that couple mates and then they're like, okay, I'm on to the next one? Like I'm ready to... Oh, it's actually really easy. So if you say like, look away and you write a note and they quick do it... Um, you can check because males, when they transfer their kind of spermatophore, it's retained externally. So it kind of oh. gets glued on. It gets like threaded into the female's genital tract and then they like glue it on. Oh. And so it sticks out and you can see this tiny little hardened white capsule sticking out of the rear end of the female. Yep. I looked this up and it's like a big old white butt glob, kind of like if you were wearing a clear fanny pack full of mayonnaise. And then does she kind of absorb that? Yeah, yeah. So she'll essentially like pump her abdomen. So she'll use her muscles to kind of start sucking that out and move that uh, seminal fluid and sperm from the spermatophore into her spermatheca, which is her sperm storage organ. And then how long does she store that? She can store it for quite a long time. Um, I haven't done tests to see exactly how long it stays in there. But there's evidence that she can use the sperm contained in a spermatheca for at least two weeks, potentially a little bit longer. Give me a fortnight. Does she get to choose like, okay, this is Harold's, this is, you know, ah. Jeffrey's. Like, does she know whose is whose? Um, we don't really have evidence of that in crickets because okay. their spermatheca is like one large balloon. So all the sperm goes into this one large area and then it kind of gets mixed. So mm-hmm. it's more of, uh, you know, who has more sperm there? They get a... Pr- fertilize that proportion of the eggs. Mm -hmm. But yeah, things like dung flies have a variety of different sperm storage organs and they can store sperm in different compartments. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. So yes, in crickets, once it's in her lady balloon, perhaps it's fair game, but she may get to pop it out first, like spitting some grizzly meat into a napkin at dinner. But other insects have internal dad pockets and they can mix and match depending on who they dig the most. What a beautiful thing. Now, speaking of beautiful things, each week we donate to a charity of the ologist choosing. And this week, Dr. Worthington chose Fontenelle Forest. It's one of Nebraska's oldest conservation organizations and one of the largest private nature centers 
in the nation. They say it's a place where people can experience and enjoy the quiet wild of nature. And it's located in Bellevue, Nebraska, just south of Omaha. So thank you, Amy, for choosing that. And there will be a link in the show notes to find out more about them. And thank you to our sponsors this week for making these donations possible. Now, a few words, kind words about those sponsors. This podcast and my life is brought to you by Squarespace. Do you know that I didn't have a website for forever because I was putting it off because I was scared? And then I heard another podcast talk about Squarespace. I was like, I'm going to give it a shot. I had a website up that day. They have beautiful templates. They host. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Look at me. Even I did it. You can sell products. You can sell your time. They have this guided design system. It's called Squarespace Blueprint. You can select from a layout. There are styling options. You can get your website discovered with these integrated, optimized SEO tools so people find you when they Google. They also have easy-to-use payment tools, so checkout, very easy for customers, which is what you want. There's also Squarespace AI, which can help you explain what your site is about. You can choose your tone. Whether you're a scientist who wants to share your work with the world, whether you are starting up a business selling tiny paintings of tiny books, or a choreographer selling dance classes, head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash ologies to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. I recommend it to all my friends, even when I'm not recording an ad. Okay. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we're all carrying around just a backpack of stressors and sadnesses. When we keep them all zipped up and the load gets heavier, it can start to affect us negatively. You start to feel misunderstood, sad, resentful. A safe place to unpack that is, you guessed it, therapy. Therapists can help you dump out your bag and work through the heavy garbage that's weighing you down, in my case at least. I've used BetterHelp. They have definitely helped me understand that pushing my feelings down does not actually make them go away. It makes them feel worse. So if you've been thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. It's suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's so much faster and easier than trying to hunt down a therapist from just online listings and cold calling. That's one thing I love about BetterHelp. And if for any reason you're not vibing with your therapist, you can switch anytime, no additional charge, no drama. So unburden yourself and trauma dump onto someone who's trained for this. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ologies. Oh, KiwiCo. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allie's love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kid busy. KiwiCo's like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids
kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. Oh, hi, it's me, the lady that checks a bunch of scholarly articles before she believes anything, Allie Ward. And I feel like we are similar in that we have a fair amount of skepticism and we like to dive deep and find out what the actual facts are. This is why when it comes to any kind of supplements, I enjoy Ritual, which is a female-founded B Corp, meaning that they're holding themselves accountable to not just the company, but also to the health of people in our planet. And they're clinically backed essential for women at 18 plus multivitamin has these high quality, traceable key ingredients in bioavailable forms that are clean. Only about 1% of supplement brands are USP verified and Ritual is one of them. So I like being able to trust what I'm putting in my body. From an aesthetic standpoint, I'll also tell you that Ritual are beautiful little vitamins. They look like lava lamps and they taste like mint. So taking my Ritual is part of my, I guess, morning ritual. I, that's probably why they named it that and I didn't even think about it. Anyway, no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. So get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash ologies. You can start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Down the hatch. Okay, we're back. Oh, I should need to ask you Patreon questions. Here we go. Connie Snow wants to know, what's the best way to get rid of crickets that come into your house? <laughs> well, it's not leave cat food out. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it, that's hard because I try so hard to attract them yeah. that I generally don't try and get rid of them. Um, okay. So yeah, then- I don't have a good answer for yeah. that. Okay, so I looked this up and apparently crickets love molasses. Who knew? So you can set out a bowl with a few teaspoons of molasses covered in a cup or two of water and they'll be like, mm, is that molasses? And they'll come and hop in. And I'm guessing that they die in bliss. I don't know what you do about the ant infestation you might get afterward. Maybe you like ants more than crickets. I don't know. You could also make sure to seal all your windows and doors with caulking or you could adopt a free-range gecko that lives in your house and eats them. But don't let the gecko out or else people will be asking me how to control their gecko populations. So another option is just to love the crickets and consider them tiny roommates who only get to live for a few months. Amy understands your plight. I also have them keep me up at night. Uh, more so for me, because when I hear them calling, it reminds me of all the research I have to do. Oh, God. Do you ever take some home in your backpack and be like, how, how'd you get out? <laughs> I frequently have empty deli cups that I carry around in case I come across crickets in the wild that I need to catch. Um, and then, yeah, when we're doing collections out in the field, I frequently will accidentally have crickets that like somehow were in a deli cup and they got like stuck in the bottom of my backpack and then I'll come across them a couple oh. days later and they're just hungry and I, it's it's very surprising when that happens. You're like, oh, hello, buddy. Is there a particular species that you tend to do your research with? Yeah, so I mostly work with species from the southern half of the United States. So okay. currently we're working on Gryllus firmus, which mm-hmm. is a sand cricket. Um, but I've also worked on the field cricket, which is the um, the Texas field cricket. So Gryllus texensis. Oh, 
I want to ask how you feel about eating them, but someone may have asked that already. They're fabulous. I actually have some suckers up there with crickets in them if you'd like one. Okay, so for more on this, see the Entomophagy Anthropology episode, which is all about bug eating as a sustainable protein source. So, chirp, gulp, burp, repeat. Mariko Shin wants to know, I'm really interested in getting into behavioral ecology. What should I expect with school and jobs in the next few years? Yeah. So actually, um, there's a lot of opportunities in terms of the field of behavioral ecology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really just about finding your interest. Okay. So, you know, going out there, reading papers, figuring out what really piques your interest, and then digging in and contacting those labs. Okay. Um, if you really love behavioral ecology... The more you get into it, the more passionate you become. And so it, everything just generally kind of falls into place, I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, on top of that, you know, like the field of behavioral ecology, the people who are a part of this field are awesome. Aww. So there's a really strong community and people are very pretty, ex- they're, you know, accepting and they're very friendly. They're very laid back. So, you know, the conferences that you'd go to as a behavioral ecologist, rather than everybody dressing up in these suits and ties, you know, you got Keens with socks <laughs> underneath and everybody's wearing a Hawaiian print t-shirt. <laughs> so it's, it's um, a very friendly field, I think. Oh, so yes. And yes to behavioral ecology. Yes. Oh, it's fabulous. Oh, yay. P.S. Behavioral ecologists can study all kinds of things from why birds fly in formation to why meerkats pop up all cute to parental care in penguins to frog calls. So much more. It's a study of why do you do that and how does it help? And it's rad. Now, less rad to some people is the appearance of a certain type of cricket. Long, wispy legs, like if Slenderman had been turned into a bug. Let's unpack it. Sydney Brown wants to know, why are cave crickets so frightening to so many people? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, I would. They're a bizarre shape, I think. Yeah, they've got they're pretty spindly. Yeah. So I think that that does a lot. I think anything unfamiliar is is hard for people, especially when it comes to insects. The more spindly an insect is, the more fear it generally and kind of creepy crawlies it instills. Yeah. But the Jerusalem cricket is as roly poly boop to doop. And I know. people hate them. Oh, but they're huge and I they're like know. bulbous and I yeah, know. they're they're larger than people want to to look at. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I love them. Um and Sydney Brown also asked, what's the most common parasite of crickets? Oh, I would say that that's probably I imagine um, most crickets, there's there's a lot of different types of parasites depending on what type of or what species of cricket you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, ectoparasites are very common. So there's kind of these large red parasites that kind of stick onto the soft parts on the outside of the crickets. But then there's also, you know, nematodes are fairly common. P.S. Nematode is how you formally address a roundworm. Like Ms. Nematode. No, please call me Roundy Dubs. Gregorines are another type of kind of intestinal parasite. Those are incredibly common as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we are currently finding out that hairworms are more and more common. So Chris Brewer wants to know, do crickets have a mating chirp? And obviously that's a yes, the males do. And it's different species to species? Yeah, yeah. So in a lot of cases, um, there's kind of overlapping species nearby, and mm-hmm. they are able to identify their mates using their particular calls. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they're very species-specific, and it helps prevent hybridization in closely related species that overlap in geographic area. Can you tell the difference of different chirps, or is that like a completely different field? Um, I have not spent a lot of time comparing one species to the next. 
Um, I can definitely tell the difference between the, the species, like the ground crickets that we have in the area versus my, my field crickets that I work on. Uh-huh. Um, they have very different calls. They're different pitches and they're kind of different frequencies. Mm-hmm. And so the ones nearby go really kind of fast and high. They also are calling during the day oh. a lot. And uh, my crickets generally are calling either, you know, like immediately after dusk or right before dawn. Oh, so they're crepuscular? Yes. Ooh, and that's, is that when they are out just feeding in general or is that with their mating time? That's generally when they're trying to attract mates. Yeah. Is that because it's a safer time for them or? Um, in part, yeah. So there's mm-hmm. not as many birds out and about, which are major predators, although they're definitely starting to get up and moving as well. Because they rely on acoustic calls, they don't have to have light available in order to attract mates. And so oh. that makes it a little easier for them to make use of those nighttime hours. Oh, that's so smart. This next question is one that's on all of our minds, probably all the time. (laughs) Jen Anathis wants to know, what behavioral ecology principles are as true with humans as animals? Oh, goodness. (laughs) You know, so I will say that, like, in terms of what I study, I study these life history Mm trade-offs. And my lab gets together and we read all these papers together and kind of look through them. And at the beginning of the semester... We read a paper about these life history trade-offs in humans and how there's trade-offs within the, between the immune response and these different reproductive hormones and other processes of the body. Mm-hmm. And so we have those same principles that are at play with us. Mm-hmm. The idea that you only have a limited amount of resources. And we generally think that, well, most of us are, you know, well off enough to be able to go out and buy more food if we need it. But the problem is, is that there's still constraints within our own bodies. We still have a limited amount of proteins that are able to shuttle different nutrients around our body. And therefore, in a lot of cases, we still are seeing the same exact types of trade-offs between the immune system and growth and health and reproduction as any other animal that lives out there. Birth rates in the U.S., side note, had a little peak in 2007, just before the recession hit, and they've been dropping for 10 years, which is maybe not a coinkydink. And do you notice trends maybe with people waiting to have kids until they're older, until they have more money to pay for the kids' college? Or is there anything trend-wise that you look at where, like, you see millennials aren't having as many children and you're like, well, the economy, or like, does that ever happen with you? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think about the amount of debt that millennials have nowadays in terms Mm -hmm. of college or trying to buy a house or pretty much anything, and earning potential is way down. And so, yeah, there's just fewer resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that cultural changes have allowed for um, there to be a shift away from this immediate kind of push to, to reproduce early and fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that has contributed to this. But there's also resource trade-offs. And as humans, one of those resources is money. It's not just mm-hmm. the amount of fat that we have available or the amount of food that we have available. And so, yeah, absolutely. We just have to kind of extend these principles into that monetary realm to understand some of the things that we're seeing that are occurring today in society. And what about with second and third wave feminism, perhaps with like women being like, no, I'd like to have a job and not just make babies. Is that behavioral ecology as well? Um, I, I mean, yes, in 
in a respect, right? So it's behavioral ecology is kind of the study of individuals and how they interact with their environments. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there's, there's going to be different pushes in terms of when to reproduce and how much to reproduce. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it gets a little tricky. It's not as easy to kind of directly relate everything to humans. Mm -hmm. Um, at least not as easy as we'd want it to be. Yeah, exactly. But it is a good thing to start talking about if an aunt or a grandma ask you when you're going to start having children, you can just go into a whole big reproductive physiology, behavioral ecology <laughs> <Yes>. rant <laughs> and just <Yes>. bore her. <laughs> yes. <laughs> bore her into not asking. Um, and I- are there any movies uh, about crickets, any any characters that you're, or do you see things like Jiminy Cricket and you're like, stop rubbing your legs together, number one. Jiminy Cricket, if, you're, if you see a cricket cartoon calling, essentially that's a cricket with a boner being like, anyone out there? <laughs> yes. Whew. Yeah. So, no, there's, I will have to say, like, Disney does a fabulous job of getting the biology right in mm-hmm. a lot of respects. Um, and a lot of those other animated films. So I'm still completely in love with A Bug's Life. That, my friends, is the sound of applause. <laughs> you know, all the things that those individuals do are just awesome. And uh, yeah, I just, I love seeing real science in the films especially for young kids Mm -hmm. especially now that i have i have a two-year-old daughter at home Mm -hmm. and just watching her learn and pick up on these things from movies makes me realize how important it is to have everything right because Mm -hmm. kids learn from there yeah they're picking it up i mean stop with the male bees for you know what i mean oh my gosh the bee movie just kills me (sighs) i can't do it i know how dare they and even even in ant-man it was like a male ant i think that and you're like uh, this is a basic. This is such an easy get. Just a side note, y'all could have named her Antonia. So easy. My God, as long as I'm pissed. Let's just stay negative for a second. What is the shittiest thing about crickets or about your job? What's the suckiest thing? Well, dead crickets smell worse than rotten potatoes. <laughs> oh, no. I don't have any metric for rotten potatoes. <laughs> don't ever forget one in the bottom of your pantry. <laughs> no, dead crickets are terrible, and they're juicy, and they're just <laughs> disgusting. So that's the worst, is when you're cleaning out cricket bins, and you accidentally touch one that just, like, explodes Ooh. in your hand. Um, but other than that, I mean, they're great. They mm-hmm. rarely bite, so you don't have to really worry about that. Um, but they do bite? They can bite. Yeah, they can draw blood. Normally, you have to be doing something to deserve it. Okay. Like, you're trying to, like, knock them out and give them an injection or tear Mm -hmm. out their testes or something like that. (laughs) They bite you. You're like, well played. Yes. Yeah. You're like, I deserve it. It's fine. Uh, What about the best thing about your job or about crickets? I would say the best thing about my job is I get to do work with a bunch of undergraduate researchers. And the vast majority of them come into my lab saying, you know, they want to go into pre-health professions. So mm-hmm. um, they want to go into be, you know, a dentistry or to become a medical doctor. And then they're doing research on crickets, which they obviously don't have interest in. Mm-hmm. Um, and getting to watch their love for these insects grow, you know, watching them the first time they interact with a cricket and how kind of jumpy they are and, and tentative. Mm-hmm. And then by the time my students leave the lab, they, they're very proud that they work with crickets. It's a bit of a badge of honor yeah. that, you know, like they can, they can pick them up and just throw them in where, whatever bins they need to. There's, you know, they're not using gloves. They're fine using their hands now. I mean, it's really fun. And then watching them explain their research in like the most engaging and amazing way. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I should say this because my current, one of my current students is giving her first oral presentation on her research in, um, over the horsehair woman crickets. Her name's Emily Harders. Uh-huh. And she would kill me if I didn't mention her on here because <laughs> she is your biggest fan. Oh, hey, shout out to at Emily Harder on Twitter. You can follow her for more ghastly information on horsehair worms. It's really a sight to behold. We still scream in glee when we allow the horsehair worms to emerge from the crickets. And you just watch as like three or four of these emerge from a single cricket. And it is still like you're in the movie Alien. Yeah, I can't believe it. It's real. It's amazing. It's like, watch out Dr. Pimple Popper, because that's pretty cathartic. This is so much better. (laughs) Yes. This has been so informative. I'm never going to hear a cricket song quite the same. <laughs> it's just essentially them being like, anyone want to have sex with me? That is absolutely my goal. <laughs> thank you so much. Yes, thank you. I love this. So to follow Dr. Amy Worthington, find her on Twitter at Worthington Lab, or you can check out her blog, amymworthington.wordpress.com. To find Ologies, we're at Ologies on Twitter and Instagram. Come say hello. I'm at Allie Ward with one L on both. And to submit questions via Patreon, join up for as little as $1 a month. My heart is very cheap. And usually I get to ask way more questions and say way more names, but this was so rushed, just saying. Okay, for Ologies merch, go to ologiesmerch.com and you can tag your pictures, Ologies merch, on Instagram so I can post you on Merch Mondays. Thank you, Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch for managing all that. And thank you, Aaron Talbert and Hannah Lippo for adminning the Facebook Ologies podcast group, which is a great place for curious non-jerks. Assistant editing was done by Jarrett Sleeper of Mind Jam Media, who hosts two podcasts, Fight Stuff about combat sports, so funny, and My Good Bad Brain about mental health. And thank you, as always, to Stephen Ray Morris for stitching these episodes together. And for more on him, you can listen to his podcast, The Purrcast, about kitties, or See Jurassic Right, which is about dinosaurs. The theme song was written and performed by Nick Thorburn of the band Islands. Now, if you stick around to the end of the episode, you know I tell a secret. And this week's secret is that I sobbed so hard this week in a Walmart after losing my wallet. And it's still missing. And let's just say it's been a rough week, kiddos. Um, But I have canceled my cards and I have blocked off a date in the next few weeks to go to the desert and just stare into space. So maybe that'll fix me. Anyway, do what you want to do. Keep singing and hopping around. Bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, litology, nanotechnology, meteorology, For 25 years, nothing has tasted better after a hard day's work than a Mike's Hard Lemonade. It's because since day one, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. We use three kinds of lemons, all hand-picked from family farms, then blended to perfection in cold press to create the epic hard lemonade you know and love. Mike's Hard Lemonade. 
Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. 